0: Hey there, ghosties. This is episode 60 of the Ghost Lights podcast. We sit down with Paul Barillo, a warrior poet and artist that I hope you all sit back and enjoy. We cover his career in New York and the human experience. Dan, do the damn thing. It's your boy, Sam Gilstrap. We are back again. Here today is the one, the only, an idol of mine. I've had the good fortune of working with him. Paul Barillo. Paul, how's it going, sir?
1: Sam, I'm so happy for you, what you're doing. I just want you to know that. Thank you, man. You found a way to uh, shift during this. uh, Well, you've been doing this since before the pandemic, but it really is a blessing right now during the pandemic.
0: Well, thank you. I was, I definitely, I knew I was going to have a little bit of time on my hands. So I wanted to try and put a little more effort into this. And I've had the good fortune of having a good teammate with Dan and enough, enough actors are finally available that I can, I can have them stop moving for a second and chat with me.
1: I think, (laughs) I think actors are easy to find right now.
0: Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. I mean, hopefully... Hopefully we get them back on track soon enough, but uh, in the, in, in the meantime, I'm going to be bugging all of them to, to be a guest on the show.
1: Oh, they should what? all jump at the opportunity.
0: Definitely. How's Erica doing?
1: You know, thanks for asking. Uh, you know, she's fighting a good fight. She's had heart issues. She's been in the hospital a couple of times in the early part of COVID and mm-hmm. uh, um, she's fighting a good fight. We're, we're, we're keeping clear of everything. I'm uh, I'm doing most of the running around stuff. And even then, I, I play it very safe. That's but good. together, we're good. She You know, she's been blasting as an artist. She's, she's written her second book, which is a memoir book. Oh, it's fantastic. kind of her life. But she's also been very prolific with her painting and with uh, some of her, her ceramic um, artwork. And she's been selling it, which is really kind of cool. People say, where'd you get that? I made it. Can you make one for me? Some people have actually um, um, actually commissioned her to uh, to paint some that's paintings, great. and she's been selling those. And now she's working on her second book, which is going to also include a lot of her paintings. So she's going to have and and her she's going to do part of her story as well as um, uh, a picture book of her art. Mm-hmm. So that's what she's been doing. She's been really really busy at home doing that.
0: Yeah, her book of poetry that she gave me, uh, I believe that they came out a few, like maybe three years ago. that's uh, beautiful five, stuff.
1: Five, five and a half years ago.
0: Oh wow! I just I, that's great. Maybe six. Did, I, think. I don't know. So like does she have a website where she's selling her stuff or? Oh
1: yeah sure. You can look <laughs> it up. All right. I don't, the... <laughs> I don't know what it's. Called. I can't remember what it's called. No uh, she's got uh, a couple of, uh, I think, two websites now oh um, fantastic yeah and she's learning how to uh take what she used to do live and start doing it on uh on the machine here you know she's working she's got a whole digital presence now and she's she actually manipulates through that much better than i do nice in, in a lot of that world yeah
0: she's definitely i mean the artist that i know erica to be is one that's very flexible and uh capable when when presented with a challenge so it makes it makes perfect and, sense and,
1: and, And she's a fierce artist. I'll use that. Absolutely. Absolutely. She's a fierce artist. And, uh, I I remember when she was writing her poetry book, uh, she would, every morning we sit down, we'd have coffee Mm. and, you know, and she'd go, okay, here's what I wrote yesterday, or here's what I'm working on. And she would read it. And if I had some problems with grammar or some of the things she, I would say, well, did you mean that word or when, and, and, she would go i didn't ask you to criticize this this is not what i'm asking i'm just and and i would say okay but when you said that word it meant three or four different things did you want it to mean three or four different things or did you just want it to mean this and later after sometimes we she just get mad that i would critique it (laughs) she'd come back that afternoon she goes okay how does this work and then she would she would work (laughs) on it so um, but she did really, she, she, uh, she's pretty amazing. Her poetry book is, uh, is a gift to everybody who, who reads it. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: I can definitely attest to the ghosties listening at home. When Paul is your coach, uh, you, you, you gotta, you gotta challenge yourself. He, he's, he's not going to do anything easy for you. Uh, uh,
1: I, I think, uh, I think I have probably turned off a lot of people because of my mouth. Uh, oh. I you know it's it's sort of like if I see if I see the truck is driving off the cliff, yeah, I, I gotta say something. I, <laughs> I I'm just not gonna be the guy who goes. I saw it gonna happen, but I didn't want to critique somebody. I didn't want to say anything. And uh, you d- you saw. don't want to just say congratulations or good for you. <laughs> uh yeah, I could do that. I could do that. Okay. Well, you remember when we met? We met doing the Pittman Painters. Uh, yeah. Several years back, Absolutely. and I got brought in at the last minute. And uh I was very impressed by the cast. I was like, oh my God, we we got a good cast with Elias uh, yes. with uh with Tim and Brandon and uh and and Mark Collins. Yep and and I I Keith, um, Kristen Mayer. And Keith and Mayor. I mean the whole yeah, I couldn't list everybody, but mm. I just remember going, we got a really good show. And then we ran into a bunch of snafus technical snafus if you recall. Oh yeah. And I, and I just shut up and I just said the- we can't do projections. We got to have real paintings. We got to have real paintings. And yeah. and at one point I finally said, Rick <laughs> doing projections when we're all supposed to be looking at a, a piece of painting and it's projected. What if the wrong one comes up? What if it's, you have a technical thing We and, 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 uh, what if there's no whippet?
0: What if I go up there and there's it no whippet? Yeah. No what are we doing then?
1: The whippet br- is, the, is the British dog. That's, a, That's it's right. It, it's yeah. like a, a greyhound. Yeah. yeah. So I remember <laughs> I opened my mouth and, and it, it uh, it, it, it rick was great rick bernstein was a great guy to work with yes and sir. Went, yeah you know what that's actually much better let's do it and uh, so we adjusted to that
0: you also gave a great idea for like like where to get the canvases and stuff done you weren't just like complaining for complaining's sake like you had solutions
1: yeah i don't i i one thing that if anybody knows me i'm just not a kvetch i'm like i like to i sort of am a problem solver and i can't help it Hmm. it's like if i see there's a problem i try and come up with a solution before i point out the problem i don't just want to be a guy go, well this sucks why don't you do something about it i may go this doesn't work and here's what i think might solve the problem absolutely um you know i was uh, back in the old days when i was in new york I, I i was a union actor and i couldn't do union non-union work and hmm. i was i was very devoted to my uh relationship to the union and i got cast as a They wanted me in this series of films, this small business, this company was making. And I couldn't do them because I was SAG. So I said, but I'll be your casting director if you want. I'll help you find the actors. And one day we, uh, we were shooting a scene with high school students at a high school during the summer, and it was a football team. So we actually got the school football team after their practice wanted to be in the film. So we said, but if you come to the film and you do this, you, you have to be here all day because if we establish you in a shot, you can't just decide you're not getting paid and walk out. You have to commit. Well, the whole team left. They didn't know they were going to have to sit there for six hours. Everybody thinks you make a movie. You're just running around doing stuff. It's mostly sitting around. Mm-hmm. And so we lost half of, not half, we lost about 90% of our football team <laughs> uh, from the morning and the, and the afternoon we were shooting the locker room scene. So, We could use different actors because everybody had helmets on. So you couldn't tell. So the the locker room scene, we could use new people. And my director goes, we're breaking for lunch. We've just lost 15 football players. (laughs) We're coming back in an hour. What are we going to do? And and we were in uh, Paramus, New Jersey. I think we were close to Paramus, New Jersey, just outside of New York. And I said, "Uh, let me see what I can do. So I grabbed two of the assistants, uh, uh, a couple of young ladies, they were high school students. And I said, where would you go to meet guys on a summer day? And they, well, we'd go down to the pool at the rec center. I went, okay. And so I said, get in the car and you're going to help me lure these guys. So they, <laughs> they, they got in the car. We, we drove out to, this, to, the, to the rec center where the outdoor pool was. And these girls are going, Oh, that's Bobby, he's so cute. And, oh look at those so and so. he actually used to play football. So I'd say, go over and talk to them. And they went and talked and they're flirting with the guys, making them feel really awesome. And and then I can say, guys, hey, you wanna be in this field, but the bottom is you gotta come within the next forty five minutes and you gotta be there till five o'clock. Yeah, yeah, we'll come. we are driving by and we see three guys out mowing a lawn with their shirts off and they're all muscular and and she goes oh that's so-and-so he just graduated so we pulled her said hey what are you guys doing after you mow the lawn you want to be in a movie sure and so we just started pulling people and sure enough one o'clock the locker room is full with about 15 guys all you know uh teenage boys that are right out of high school just wanting to be in a movie and the director came back and he was expecting not to have a crew and he saw the whole locker room with a bunch of guys standing there. And he goes, how did you do that? And I said, these two girls did it, really. Yeah. They're the ones that got him here. And <laughs> and and then he said, I want you on my set from now on, not just as a casting director, but I want you as an assistant to me as a director. He said, he said because I don't know how you did it, but you just get shit done. He That's said, right. I don't really want to know how it's, You just, you just, you figure stuff out. And I need people on my crew not to point out everything that's wrong, Mm -hmm. but to point out what the solutions might be. And so I ended up becoming, uh, uh, I didn't get a pay raise, but I was now in a different position with the film company just because Uh, I I was a problem solver for him. Yeah.
0: I mean, that's, I mean, that's, that's a crucial part about providing feedback or criticism in those regards. It's like, you're not, if you're, if it's just, like if it's just the hateration yeah. the hater as it were then there's people What does that mean hater raid? Hater um it's it's basically it's a colloquialism that means the the a, a put down that someone's giving you that they're masking as oh,
1: yeah.
0: a, a something to build you up like oh you could probably do that faster or better or you could take the suck out I don't know those are some random phrases I'm throwing <laughs> in there But like anyone that's trying to tell you how to do something without having a plan on how to do it, that could be perceived, I would dub that haterade.
1: Well, it also is frustrating.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: But at the same time, I I walk a a fine line when I open my mouth um, of really coming across that I'm disrespecting the person who's in charge uh, just by saying, hey, this isn't working. Can we try something? And uh, I, uh, the nice thing about getting older as an older actor and as an older human being mm-hmm. is, you look back and you go, yeah, I probably could have handled that better when I was 30, you know, when I when I did this and I said that, but it was well intended. Who cares? You pissed somebody mm-hmm. off and you got fired, uh, or you, you know, or they don't ever want to work with you again. Yeah. So you learn from your mistakes. And the great thing about getting older is you got a whole lot of learning that you got. You you made yeah. a lot of mistakes. And you hopefully get a little wiser with each one, um, and a little humbler too. Get a little humbler as well.
0: Well, the, the the learning should never stop, whether you're an artist or just a person.
1: Hopefully, always, it never does. Yeah, yeah.
0: I, I I love the story about getting that that show cast because without the context of the film, it's really kind of creepy. <laughs> I used these two high school girls to get me some boys with their shirts off.
1: Well, I thought if I get in a if I get in a car and I drive over to Paramus, uh, to the to the swimming pool and I go up yeah. to some teenage boys and say, "Hey, you guys want to be in a movie? It's a shot It's a locker room scene. You'll be wearing towels. Yeah. And, you know, do you want to do? That? I don't know who the hell you are. And no, thank you. But yeah. I thought if they saw somebody they recognized, it was it was an inroad to, to making the contact. And it it all worked. You know. Oh, definitely, so, yeah. definitely.
0: Having the connection though with the ladies helps out a lot more than you pulling up in the windowless van
1: I see, yeah, forget it i would have i would have yeah. come back by myself
0: yeah with, or with, or in handcuffs or
1: <laughs> or some creepy dude going yeah i want to be in the locker room scene oh, i'll I'm be, oh, I'll be in your movie paul here. yeah
0: yeah <laughs> i i do want to say though going back to like working with you in terms of like when you coach somebody you coached me prior to my audition for the Arvada center when I got waiting for Godot yeah. and that was a humongous help. Like going through the paces with you starting and stopping. Like we did so frequently, which is any acting di- acting coach that I've ever had or director I've ever had could tell you is one of those things that just drives me up a fucking wall. Yeah. But it's really what gave me the confidence to like step into that room and make the choices that I made. So, you know, it's you're good it's at what you do. Of, so thank you.
1: It's sort of like that driving off a cliff thing is if you, if you if you make a a, t- a wrong turn, mm-hmm. and you don't know you made it, and and you just keep going that way, you're just going to get farther away from where you need to be. Absolutely right. And so if you stop it right away and go, okay, let's see where this ha- see where you turned left and you should have gone right. So let's Definitely. go back and let's see why you turned left. Maybe that is the thing to do and make it a conscious choice. Uh, and uh, but now you now you have a choice when you get to that point to make a decision. You know which direction to go. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it, when I moved to New York, I, I moved to New York city when I was uh, 23. I, I went to UNC in Greeley, which uh, my hat's off to the staff there. I mean, I had uh, Lynn Hemingway was a costume teacher. Mm-hmm. I had to take costuming to get the degree. Luke, Bill Bill Vanloo was the tech designer. Uh, I had to do tech design set set painting and construction. These were all things you needed to get your degree. When I look back at what I learned to get that degree, I thought those were the classes that I didn't need because I was an actor. And why do I want to learn how to build a set? Why do I need to learn about how lighting works? Why do I need to sew? I'm not going to sew. Well, I learned basically how to push fabric through a sewing machine. That that was it. I to this day I can't read a pattern. I can't do that. But I understand how sewing works. Uh, I understand how set design works. I I understand, you know, basic shop class things that I got and I've integrated a lot of those into my career. And we're not talking a job. We're talking my career in the arts, which is as extended way beyond being an actor. In fact, the acting thing is now such a small part of it that it's easier for me to let that go because some other things that I'm doing now are fulfilling my, uh, my spirit, which when i was younger only acting could do Mm -hmm. and now i'm finding you know so so moving to new york was uh, was really eye-opening and and i moved there because one i wanted to be a star i wanted to i said well i'll be on a soap opera in a year and then i'll have a couple of films and next thing you know i'll be doing broadway and i had this whole you know dream list of what i wanted to do
0: yeah
1: and when i got there the reality was I just want to experience life to go to the depths of, of humanity. And, and I lived in a a horrible neighborhood in the East village and I was in the middle of the drug, drug culture. I was in the the middle of, it was a Puerto Rican neighborhood that was pretty much dominated by crack and heroin. Hmm. And I, um, I lived in that neighborhood and I, somebody introduced me to clowning and, uh, uh, they said, you'd be a good clown because you're a street mime. You should learn some kids' tricks and, you know, just survive that way. So I was known as Payaso in my neighborhood. And I'm walking down Avenue B, which was a pretty rough neighborhood. Now it's like the apartments are, you know, $4,500. We paid $309 for mine. Oh, um, but I was known as Payaso in the neighborhood because sometimes I put on my clown stuff. And I wasn't the clown with the big wig and the, the, the ringling mask and all that. I just usually put a red nose on my face or I did, I did mine. And uh, when, when I'd walk down the neighborhoods, the, the drug lords were all sitting on the stoops and I'd walk down with a bunch of balloons and my clown nose on and my floppy hat and all the little children, the sons and daughters of the drug lords would go, ah, payaso payaso. And I, uh, and so a lot of them didn't even know my name for a long time. They just called me the clown. So when I was in makeup or not makeup, the children greeted me as payaso. And one day some guy goes, hey, you know, they're calling you a clown. And I said, yeah, I am. And he went, well, that's that's kind of an insult. I said, not, not, not to me it isn't. And so I had this wonderful relationship. I don't know how I segued into this, but um, – uh, but that was that was my relationship in my neighborhood in uh, in the East Village. I was payaso, mm-hmm. and um, you know I had my acting career, but I also made money as a as a, a, an entertainer, doing mime and character work at parties, as well as doing kids' birthday parties. And um, the thing in New York is, if you don't make the money to pay the rent, you're not living there. No. And I went. I got to make sure that I can pay the rent. So I'm willing to do what I need to do. Short of selling my morals down the toilet, which a lot of people do in New York, and and it's and bless them when they do that because I've known a lot of people who've you know who've had to do some things they would normally not do, but they they did them in order to pay the rent, and mm-hmm. um, my heart went out to them because you know that they were compromising themselves, and I never had to do that. Unless being a clown is a compromise, then I I gladly wear it. You know, I gladly wear it. Was that. When
0: you, what motivated you to move out to New York from your home? Like, how did
1: that passion start for you there? Well, I've always wanted to be an actor. I mean, that was something that when I first, I loved Tarzan movies when I was a little kid. And I I asked my dad, he goes, Where do you want to go to vacation? Because every two years, our family of six did a vacation. We were all, we all did it by car. We never, we never flew. We would Mm -hmm. drive to California, we would drive to Mexico you know, six people in a little Chevy Nova. I mean, it was like, it's built for four people, but we did it. And and he asked me one day, he said, well, where do you guys want to go for vacation this, this next summer? And I said, let's go to Africa. Oh. And he just said, Africa? Why are you want to go to Africa? And I said, because I want to meet Tarzan. And he just started laughing. I think I was six years old. And he goes, Tarzan is an actor. He lives in Hollywood. And they shoot certain parts of the movie in Africa and then they do the acting here and then they edit it together. I said, so Tarzan is an actor? And he said, yeah. And he went, well, he swings with the trees. He lives in a tree house. He swims. He fights alligators. He rides elephants. He talks to the animals. He's a a a naturalist. I thought, well, then that's I want to be an actor because that's what actors get to do is they get to do this. <laughs> so that was my motivation to become an actor was to swing through trees and not wear clothes. I did not like clothes. Uh, I was, you can
0: you can take your shirt off if you want, Paul. Yeah. You want me to do that? <laughs> well, I just want you comfortable.
1: <laughs> uh, trust me. I'm much more comfortable with my shirt on now. So that same, was, uh, same. that was, that was my, my intro to, to acting. And, and ultimately when I went to college, got my degree, I was either going to go to L.A. or I was going to go to New York. Hmm. And um, my uncle, who just recently passed away a year and a half ago, you know, I've got a cousin, Tom uh, Barillo, who um, took the same path. He became an actor. Interestingly enough, moved into my neighborhood and had my agent in New York when I left. Oh wow! Uh, He he, he had the same agent. Um, My uncle sat me down when I said, well, I'm going to move to L.A. And he goes, well, why do you want to go to L.A.? I said, well, because, you know, I want to make a career as an actor. And he said, well, you know, the training is actually in New York. He said, Hollywood makes movie stars. New York makes actors. And that was what he told me. That was his opinion. Mm. I mean, that's not necessarily true. Totally. But he said, you'll spend more time in a car getting from A to B in L.A. than you will in New York. In New York, you'll do more of what you want to do. You won't spend your time transporting yourself. So I decided to make my switch from, from LA and move to New York. And I went there at age 23. And um, I thought, you just get off the plane, go hunt for an apartment, and then move in that night. And my dad goes, no, you don't. Um, and because my family's from New York. I was born in New York. So So he goes, you're going to stay with your cousins in New Jersey until you find a place. So they picked me up at the airport and I stayed with, uh, stayed with my, my aunt and her family. And I would take my daily train ride into Manhattan till I found a job, found a place. And then it was as if the cork blew off of the champagne bottle and my life, it was almost like a second you know birthing for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realized I'm in it now and there's no looking back. And, what popped
0: uh, that bottle? Pardon me? What popped the bottle?
1: um making this the decision to go there because it's a tough decision to do that mm. um so just making that decision was opening it up and then when i when i when I got into new york and and the smell was different mm. the thick the air is thicker it's it's hotter it's moister, mm-hmm. and you're walking around and there's a weight to the city it's a city that's in your face, and there was a Simon Garfunkel song the boxer uh, yeah what is the lyric where he says going to the place where the ragged people go looking for the places only they would know. And I went, this is what I want to do. I grew up in suburbia. I've been taken care of. I want to go somewhere where I'm not taken care of. I want to go somewhere where, where I'm challenged because I I felt that I I got a pass, a free pass being suburban kid in Colorado. So I wanted to go there where I was going to be facing life and death pretty much on a regular basis, which in the beginning, it feels like that. Then you sit back after a while and go, wow, this is life. And everybody in the city was struggling the same way. I went there for experience, life experience, and along the way, some acting coaching. Nice. Yeah.
0: What was your first? Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, what was your first gig out there? Mm -hmm. Aside from being the clown, was it? Well, the clown was not my first
1: gig. That took me up. that took me about uh, three months before that started to take place. Mm. I uh, I was uh, my first job was um, working uh, at the New York uh, Renaissance Festival. I got a job at the RenFest, which was kind of cool, mm. and I was doing Chaucer. Um, we did a, a, a two Chaucer plays, and that was nice because I got out of the city every weekend. We went up to Bear Mountain area, uh, Sterling Forest is what it was called and we did the renaissance fair we made 29 bucks a day i worked with this funny guy named john lovitz um who liked the improv stuff that i was doing and he kind of goes hey can i improvise with you guys uh and we said yeah come on in so we would we would jump let him join us and then two years later that's, he's on saturday live you know <laughs> john lovitz got on saturday live and he goes little and he was a skinny little guy and, and
0: yeah and uh and so, so Saturday Night Live money went straight to his thighs.
1: It went straight to his thighs. I think that's how he got the job, as he put on the weight and became a real a real character type. Um, I
0: bet it was the relationship with Morgan Fairchild. I think that helped him out a lot. Was
1: that, yes. Yeah, Morgan Fairchild. Morgan yeah. Fairchild. That's, that's the ticket. I can't remember, I can't remember what it is. Yeah. The 80s were a very fruitful time in New York. I, I moved there in 1980, mm. and um, it was still cheap to live in cheap by comparison today it was still expensive by national standards at the time um but i i wanted to uh experience ugly up front Mm. and i wanted to know what 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 it was like to live in a neighborhood where i was a minority so i lived in a puerto rican neighborhood Mm. and i wanted to i just i just wanted to to sort of cleanse myself of some of the privilege that I felt I had, even though I look back and I go by, by many standards, I did not have a privileged childhood at all.
0: That was your mindset back then. Yeah. You you were privy to the privilege that you might've been.
1: Very, very privy to it. Hmm. My father was born in Italy and he came over as an immigrant and he had to teach his parents English and he was prejudiced against being an Italian. they were second-class citizens, and he had to fight, mm-hmm. and he became a tough guy. Even though he was a tiny bit of a man, nobody messed with my dad. Tony Barillo, you don't fuck with Tony, you know, <laughs> and um, and his brother, my uncle, was six foot four, this tall, lanky, gentle guy who became a, a Harvard graduate and a very prominent criminal lawyer in Colorado mm-hmm. and wrote countless books of poetry, books on Elitch Theater. He's got a book about Elitch Theater that he... He does his research really well, and um, he always told me, he "says you know your dad was he was tough. Nobody messed with Tony, and and um, so my dad taught me something about knowing what it's like to uh, to be prejudiced against, mm-hmm. to to have uh, to have people uh, not treating you equally, and so I always felt that even though I didn't have that, I was in son of that. And so it was it was in my genes. So I, I really, you know, I, I it influenced a lot of what I what I still do today and how I look at things.
0: Well, definitely. I mean, the, from the relationship that you and I have, um, I would definitely agree with that for sure. It's 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 refreshing and I'll even say shocking for me, because, of, of course, even now, as you were telling me the story about your trip to New York and the work that you wanted to do or the things you wanted to experience more specifically to have that awareness of like, I'm, I've had it pretty good. I got to know all sides of
1: life. The, I think, every th- everybody motivation.
0: Should. Yeah.
1: You know, I also, I also felt that as an actor, a lot of the motivations when you're young is, money, glory, fame, fortune. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I realized that if you're not trying to be truthful with what you're doing as an artist, um, you'll, you'll never really get there. You, you might make money or something, but, and I thought I want, I want my work to be meaningful to me first. It has to be meaningful to me. Mm -hmm. And so i wanted to even and i take great pride in doing children's entertainment because when i'm a clown at the taste of colorado or i'm doing street performing i look at a little kid and and i realize that person there that's four years old or five years old is a human being Hmm. and they're they deserve the respect and attention as much as somebody who's paying you the, the money to be there and um can i tell you a quick story absolutely um it's a movie it's a film that i'd like to make a short film and when i was in new york and this was probably in the about 85 and i moved there in 80 Mm -hmm. and i got to where now i was doing i was doing i did the shows that people didn't want to do some guy would call me say hey paul uh we got a we got a job in uh in a mcdonald's in harlem and they want he-man from the tv series Mm he-man now this is a blonde nordic uh Tarzan type who wears a red loincloth. He's got a big muscle chest and a sword on his back. And I'm and very blonde.
0: familiar with He-Man.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and and blonde hair. And they want him to uh they want him to show up to a four-year-old birthday party in the McDonald's playroom uh in Harlem, right on Lenox Avenue at noon on a Saturday. <laughs> Here you go. So I uh and they said nobody will do this, but Paul would do it. So I said, yeah, if I could, I'll do it. I'll do some magic tricks. And when I look at the kids, they don't see what somebody else might see. They mm-hmm. see He-Man walking into a McDonald's. And so I went into the bathroom and I had this muscle chest that was kind of pink with muscles in it. And I put this, the unitard on with the muscles. I put on the little red shorts and the blonde wig. And these dudes were walking in and out of the bathroom, watching me get dressed and like, dude, you got some balls, man. You know, you're, this, ain't the, this ain't the place to be doing this. Uh-huh. And I stepped out of the bathroom. Everybody's in line getting their McDonald's. And they look over and they looked at me and I struck a heroic pose and said, I'm He-Man. And, <laughs> and I walked across the, the, the lobby into the playroom and the kids, I, I might as well have been the greatest celebrity in the world to have just walked in. They were bouncing up and down like popcorn. And, and I did a little magic show as He-Man. And um, that's not the story I wanted to tell. But I did a lot of shows in areas where nobody else would do them. Mm-hmm. And one time I, I was doing a show up in Harlem, doing my clown show. And when I got done, I was exhausted. I grabbed my bag of props and I had my, my jacket on, uh, like a the, sort of a Charlie Chaplin-esque kind of thing with a, with a, with a red nose and a floppy hat. I walked into the bus, paid my money. It was, a, it was a summer day and I thought, I'm not gonna get in the subway. i want to take the express train, uh, express bus. And I got in and I sat down and the, the, the buses back then were long bench, benches. They weren't mm-hmm. individual seats. They were benches that faced each other. Mm-hmm. And the passengers that were standing would just stand in the middle and hold the, to hold the rails. So I walked in and there were probably met 12 people on the bus and this clown walks in with this bag of props. And I, I set it down towards the, the, the back of the bus and I'm sitting there and of course, everybody's reading their paper. And, you know, one or two guys would look at me and go, oh, asshole, you know, it's like, <laughs> he's a clown on the bus. What's this and I, doing? I would look down, down the row and about six seats down from me on the right, this little child, pushes his head forward and is looking down at me and is going mommy mommy there's a clown there's a clown in the bus and the is going Shh, shut up be quiet and nobody even took notice of me except this little child so I open my bag and I pull out a balloon and I blow the balloon up and I twist it into a knot and I slowly make it into a dog and the other passengers kind of not moving their head, but their eyeballs are watching what I'm doing. Mm. And when I finish the dog, I start playing with it on my knee and the little kid is looking. And then I look at the guy next to me and I hand it to him. And he's like, no, I said, and I didn't talk. I did the whole thing in mind. And mm. I said, no, 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 it's not for you. And I pointed to the little kid, six seats down from him. And he goes, oh, so he takes the dog and he hands it to the next person. They keep handing it down until the little kid gets the dog. And the little kid waves, it means like, thank you. And the mother waves and says, thank you. And then two seats down from them, another kid pops his head forward to look (laughs) down the back. And I went, oh God, there's another one there. So I blew up and I made a little giraffe. And next thing I know I'm making balloons and across from me is some lady. And I looked at her with this look of like, you want one too. And so I blew one up and I made a flower for her and I handed it to her. Next thing you know, Everybody's sort of watching this little, and I'm not talking at all. The windows are open on the bus. The wind is blowing through. And then there's a couple sitting there and they're holding hands. So I blow two balloons up and I handcuff them together with the balloons. And then I come and sit back down. Hmm. And then there's another person next to them. So I grab a handcuff, a balloon handcuff, and I handcuff the lady to the guy next to her. And now what I'm doing, I'm starting to, connect everybody on the bus with balloons and across from me a couple seats down onto the side is a very large black man with a muscle shirt and he's just sitting there with sunglasses on not even moving and he's watching this whole thing and I've been twisting four or five people connecting them together and I look at him and I look at the girl next to him and other people in the bus are shaking their heads like don't do it dude don't don't even No. Don't. don't engage so i stare at the guy through his glasses and i slowly blow a big balloon up and i'm looking at him the whole time and i'm slowly tying it into a knot and i get up and i go to the girl next to him and i turn it around her thing and he's sitting there and he's got his hand on his knee and i lift his hand up and he holds his hand up and i put it around his hand and i tie it and it puts it down and then this huge smile comes across this guy's face Mm. everybody else in the bus exhaled and I proceeded to put balloons on people's heads connecting everybody in the bus and all the while I'm looking going when's my stop coming when's my stop coming Mm. so I get up and I start moving to the front of the bus and I tie one around the driver's seat to the next person the bus comes to a stop and I'm at 14th Street and I blow a balloon up and this big lady gets on carrying all these bags and I hand her a balloon and she looks into the bus. Everybody in the bus is connected with balloons and flowers and hats. (laughs) And I stepped off the bus, blew a kiss to everyone. They all applauded, the light changed. And as the bus drove away, everybody looked out the window and you could see their faces following me as the wind was blowing the balloons flapping and um, it drove off. And yeah. it, was, it was a m- magical, magical moment for me. And I thought, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Yes, I like to do theater and yes, I wanna be on stage, but I also, um, I, I wanna do this. I want to get out there and make this world just a little safer and a little funner, crazy place to be. That's you- my balloon story
0: that's a beautiful story it got me thinking what was the icebreaker for the next person like you you hand this balloon off at the start of the story to the man sitting next to you and he does and he he doesn't want any part of it but you're like no no it's for the kids and then by the end of the event everyone is a child again is, is yeah.
1: that what it is and in fact i could see people going you're not going to leave me out are you mm-hmm <laughs> They're like, because one guy was just reading his paper and just was like didn't want to do anything. And and he looked and 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 I looked at him. I think the beauty of it was I never spoke the entire time. It was all done in silence. Mm-hmm. Um and uh and just just for you know about a 20-minute bus ride. There was this little show that went on. And when somebody had to get off the bus, they pulled their wrist out of the the thing and he would either Give it to the next person and just get off the bus. So people were getting on and off, but the whole bus was just decorated with balloons. It was it was fantastic. It was a great. I would experience.
0: love to. I would love to hear the stories that some of those people told when they got home.
1: I yeah, I wonder. Uh, but the look on their faces when they drove by was almost like, "What do we do now?" Yeah, we're all connected with these balloons, and the guy who connected us is gone what do we do? How do we, Mm -hmm. and I don't know what happened, but, um, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was, it was a a real fun moment for me. Something I'll never forget. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That kind of confused. What do we do now? Moment. It, I, I saw the movie interstellar. And I think I've mentioned this on this podcast many times at the end of that movie, like me and the 70 other people that were in there, including the girl that got away. Um, we were sitting there for five minutes in this shared silence, not quite sure how to move. And maybe it's, I mean, maybe people will, will nitpick and like, Oh, that's not the movie for that. But for that crowd, it was, and yeah. to have that kind of, and we always talk about the shared experience. Like that's, see, that's, that's glorious. That's, that's a gift that's in what, and of that's itself. What live,
1: that's what live theater is. Hmm. Live theater is you got all these people sitting in a room And you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know if an actor is going to go up on this. You don't know. But you're hoping that it will be an exciting piece of theater. Mm -hmm. But whether it is or it isn't, you all share it together in that moment. And that moment exists only in that moment. And when it's done, it's gone. Just like all moments. But when you do it in theater, it's, it's a shared experience.
0: I think it definitely puts the... I feel like going to see a show puts the emphasis on the moment more yeah. than just going through your day to day. We take getting up and going to work for granted. At least we did. I'm sure there are some people now in 2021, they're going like, I would kill to go to work right now. And that's definitely not the right words to use there. I apologize. I think people eager to go to work and go through the mundane because that feels normal and, and now maybe a little more memorable to them. But yeah. when you when you buy that ticket and you sit in that squeaky velvet seat and the lights go down and the yeah. music plays or the first actor comes out, that, that changes. Like, it's almost, for me, it's like a hold your breath moment. Like, what what is the beginning of this? Especially if you haven't seen or read the play
1: before. Right, yeah, you don't know what's coming. Mm-hmm. Um, the theater is you know it's you could say it's like going to church it's it's uh it's a communal gathering it's um uh, um it's a shared experience
0: and well that's i mean that's how storytelling began it was part of it was part of their ritual yeah we passed down the you know how to you know how to defend your, defend and take care of yourself. We told that in stories in the, by the campfire in the cave, and then that evolved. And now we walked into buildings with high spires and these uncomfortable wooden pews and these books. And we presented the stories through that. And it's just, it's evolved into this place where we can tell a story in a 22nd TikTok video. Now. I mean, and the
1: attention span of audiences today, particularly on on video and, and online is so much shorter uh and yet when they when you experience something live mm-hmm. you you give it you give it more attention you give it more focus and you can you can you can control people watching you can pull them into a piece whereas if they're looking at it on their phone like, ah i don't want to watch this and they just a finger you can't do that in the theater you have to stay with it so yeah. you can you can you know with good writers they will pull you in as you as you come along what Definitely. got you into theater Sam? What got me
0: into theater yeah um it was an easy a in college what's that it was an easy a an eca huh? yeah i was able to just show up literally for the first two years i, I always took a theater class in college and i would just show up say here or present or whatever, be the first one to volunteer for any type of exercise. And that would take 15 seconds to a minute. And then I could be done for the rest of the week. Like you just had to show up once. Get it over basically. with quick. yeah. And they would give you the A at the end of it. And, and I was so down to take advantage of this easy degree. And it wasn't until I was a senior that I was like, Oh, people think I'm good at this. Well, I want people to think I'm worthwhile and worthy, so I'm going to act. Yeah. And, it I mean, you were talking about, like, the stupid stuff you're doing at 30. I'm 37 and very aware of the stupid stuff I was doing then and how uh, I didn't appreciate it sometimes as much as I should have.
1: You know, um, one of the things that I – and, and reason I earlier mentioned my, my costume teacher in, in college – Um, I was always fascinated by how things work, how -hmm. things happen. When I saw Marcel Marceau do mime, walking in the wind and climbing a ladder, I went, oh my God, he really looks like he's walking in the wind. Or my God, he really looks like he's climbing up a ladder and his feet never leave the ground. And I thought, I want to learn how to do that. When I saw uh, the magic of Jim Henson in Puppets, I went, I want to be able to do that. I just, I wanted to be in on things that, that made people that shared d- joy, things yeah. that, that spread joy and involvement, and people people liked. I wanted to know how that happened. When I was uh, the second year in New York, I I met a girl in an acting class who happened to be a puppeteer for uh, Jim Henson. Um, her name was Cheryl Blaylock, still to this day a very dear friend of mine. She goes, "Oh yeah, you you know, we're gonna go out on a date." I was taking her out to the movies or something, and I went to to pick her up at work, and she goes, "Hey, I'm I'm." I'm working on some Miss Piggy dresses. I'm gonna be a little late. Come on in and sit down and -and so-and-so will give you a tour of Hanson's puppet shop. So (laughs) she was working on this project she had to finish. I think I was come on over here. We'll show you where we make kermits. These are all the kermits and here's how we frock them how we did this magnetic process to make the fuzz stand on end and here's how we do this and here so i was walking through henson's shop which was in a brownstone on the upper east side so you're like walking into somebody's old house yeah that was converted into a shop then and then she says oh uh after after we dated a couple of a couple months she says hey i'm, I'm nominated for an emmy award you want to be my date and i'm like, what and she said, Yeah, if you if you wanna, I just need somebody to go and and you wanna come. And I was like, good God, it was a daytime Emmys. And I said, sure. I'm from Colorado. I don't know what you do. I brought her a corsage. And she just <laughs> she just looked at that. She goes, She just she just looked at me like, like a little child. She says, You're you're so adorable. You're so Colorado. would you be offended if I don't wear the corsage? Because I hadn't been to anything big yeah. except prom, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, so we go to the, we go to the Emmys and she wins and she's up oh giving her acceptance speech. And then she goes, come on, we're going to the after party. And then I went and met Jim Henson and shook his hand and, we're talking, and I'm like going, my God, these are, these are people that I've admired and, and programs that I just, I didn't know that I'd be in this circle here. Um, I, I started doing some volunteer work for an organization called artists and hunger. And I had another girlfriend. I did a lot of things. You know this is shameful but i got into a lot of things because of my relationships with women that pulled me in mm. i i would be attracted to them and and i'd want to know their world and so they turned me on to a lot of really amazing things
0: you're not alone and, uh,
1: Paul. we got a we got an opportunity to perform a mime show for Artist and hunger program at carnegie hall and we're sitting here 12 of us doing this mime an orchestral mind piece in Carnegie hall. And I'm going, I'm performing in Carnegie hall. We weren't getting paid. It was volunteer work, but there I was. And these things were happening to me because I was really opening my, myself to experience, not, not, I do it for this much money was experience. And I don't know how much time we got left, but one of the things that, that this one girl brought me into, she brought me into this training, um, seminars that they were doing that were big in the 80s and and I, I took the seminar it was like four days of intensive looking at yourself and one of the things that that they asked you to do is to is to make a list you hand you a little piece of paper make a list of everything you'd like to do if you found if you knew you were going to die in one year what would you want to do what's on your bucket list so I'm writing down. I want to do this, and I want to. I want a film role, and I want to go see Paris, and I really definitely want to see the uh, um, uh, the pyramids and the Sphinx, and I want to go to Hawaii and surf in Hawaii. I want to, you Yeah, know, I just made this ridiculous list. Some people's lists were three pages long. Some people were a page. And he goes, "Great, get into a small group and discuss your lists and why they're, these things are important to you." Then he goes, "Okay, now." tear that piece of paper off, get another one out. And what if you found out you were gonna die in one month? You got 30 days to live. What do you wanna put on that list that's from the other list? And I was like, oh, well, I can skip the pyramids. I can skip this, you know, the Eiffel Tower. And so the list was uh, a little different. And we get in a group and we talk about those. Then I go, okay, tear that page off. You got one minute to live. Hmm. actually you started with one day what do you want to do in one day and all those those things that were on the list about becoming famous and getting an acting career and visiting all these great things suddenly it was about <sighs> <sighs> sorry i italian I blame it on Italian, but it was like, I want to lay it out. I want to say hi to my mom and my dad and tell them how much I love them. And I'm in a constant battle with my brother and I want to make peace with my brother. Mm. And I want to look at all the people that I might have offended and I want to apologize. It's like, I want to make things right. And and then we broke into small groups and they said, So when it gets down to if you know you're gonna go, what's really important to you? And it was no longer those selfish sort of grandizement things that, that make you, you know, want to be famous and all that. It was about mm-hmm. I want, I want love. And I want people in my life to feel that they have been loved and to be thanked. For the love that they have given me and that was a very important process for me to go to and it slowly started to infiltrate how i make decisions in my life why i will i i start off with grand ideas but at the end it's like i want it to be meaningful and truthful and honest as if what i say is the last thing you're going to hear from mm-hmm. me and what i do are the last actions of my being i want those to be what i stand for and that always trickled into the back of my consciousness and it still does and it doesn't mean i had this altruistic uh, expression of my being it didn't because every now and then i went well i just sort of blew that idea up or i just Mm -hmm. pissed that person off or i got selfish here but it taught me to slowly seek that perfection of narrowing down and putting my, my life into a perspective that that I was always living as if I'm not going to be here tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And so even to this day, and it made me a much better father, even when I was raising my son Shane, and and I would like lose my temper at him because anybody who's a parent knows you're going to, these kids are going to drive you crazy. I'd always make a point of pulling him before we went to bed and I pulled him aside and said, I just want you know, know, I, I don't feel good that I got driven to this level of anger. I'm sorry for that and I don't want you to think that I won't get angry again but I want you to know that that doesn't set nice with me and that I will always try to make sure that I balance the board before I, before I move on mm-hmm. and that's just kind of you know that's another th- gift about getting older is you look and you go yeah we ain't going to be here forever yeah. what are we going to do with this time What's important? Do I want to do theater? Just if I want people to laugh, I want them to laugh because they need to laugh and it's good for their soul. And if I want them to cry, I want them to cry because it's, it's an expression of an honest moment of emotion. And so I approach a lot of my theater, probably in many ways too heavy, but it's just kind of my instrument. And that's the path that I, that I chose.
0: Yeah. Yeah, It's, I would say, I mean, based off just listening to you now, I don't feel like that, if that is your path as an artist, that's not heavy at all. I mean, I think one of the things that I was going to ask you when you told me your story about making these balloons for these people is if you felt compelled to give that, that group of people that experience in terms of how you performed all the time. And that seems pretty clear that that is something that you want to do. It's not just about going up there on stage in the light and, and doing a good job on a beautiful monologue or in a beautiful drama. It's not about like hitting the notes and making sure you're always hitting your mark, but it's also about making sure that it's an experience shared by everybody in the room.
1: Yeah, that people get can can tap into their own personal humanity on whatever level they choose. Mm-hmm. Um, I I'd said earlier, I, I wanted to acknowledge the, the people that taught me the craftsmanship of making things. And uh, I make living statues. And somebody would said, well, Paul, you don't need to be doing this at your age and your level of your career. You don't need to be standing out street performing as a statue. And I said, do you think I don't like doing that? I mm-hmm. love doing that. There's something about being a street performer, especially when you're doing statue stuff, where some people walk by and they don't even see you and others, they get goofed on. And they're admiring the artwork that I've created from the living statues and the giant puppets and the costumes that I make, because I did learn how to make puppets from dating that girl, Cheryl. Mm-hmm. Uh, I learned uh, something about soft sculpture foam. And so I took that little gift from her and it became another form of expression for my art. Right. And to this day, here I am, 64 years old. Um, if you go up to Vale on Saturdays and Sundays and you see this six foot tall penguin walking around and sitting in chairs and stuff, that's me. And nobody can see that it's me but I can put on this costume. I can be a 25 year old kid. I can be a 50 year old, 60 year old person, whatever. But I am watching audiences respond to this giant penguin. And my son my son works in, in an emergency room. Uh, he got his master's degree as a uh, therapist specializing in addiction and suicide. Mm-hmm. And he works for the last several years with people who are dealing with that very traumatic period in somebody's life when they're just not sure they want to be here. Hmm. And he does living statues for us. And I made a big giant snowman that would fit his six foot six frame. And he goes up and he and I'm a penguin and he's a snowman. And we're walking around Vale for photo ops and the kids go ballistic <laughs> there's your, there's your ski bumblego go asshole, or, <laughs> how much they pay you to do that. And then, you know, you get that kind of stuff and then there's thus and we get paid well for it. And my son said something to me about a year and a half ago when we went up to the mountains, this is pre COVID. And he had been working intensely with young children specifically who were contemplating killing themselves. Mm. And I said, you want to come up and, and be a, a walking Christmas tree at the holidays. And he goes, yeah. So I made this beautiful Christmas tree costume and he's dancing around with children. And you know, he's this big tree and we got in the car ride and we were coming home. He said, thanks for, for introducing me to this silly, silly way of making money because I can't tell you how wonderful it felt to be performing for little children who didn't want to kill themselves. Because that's the only children he had been seeing in his business. Mm. They, they send them to him when they're ready to, when they're contemplating not living. And he said, it's very joyous to get out here and make children laugh. Yeah. He said, this is such a gift to be able to go deal with a real crisis and then come out here and be part of alleviating a crisis, mm-hmm. to be part of a cure. And I've always felt that that's what we as artists have the power to do, is to heal and cure and do good and possibly, hopefully, alleviate the pain that is so easy to wallow into. I mean, it's so easy to get depressed, especially now during this COVID. This This is a biblical time we're living in. What's happening here? What happened with our last president? What's happened with, with the pandemic? What's happening globally? This, this is once in multiple generations, things that happen, you don't see this. And we're living in a very profound period of time. I'm gonna be writing about this. I'm already starting to journal and tell my stories, starting from my New York experiences and things here, because I think this is, um, this is a real prolific time in human history. And we are we are faced with, you know, do we do we continue with particularly with this noble experiment of democracy, or do we just throw it all out and burn it with the with, you know with the trash, mm. and and start from scratch and chaos? And I think I think we somewhere in the human soul is the yearning for a better place, and 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 to make make this a better place to be, and for that. Um, and for that, I, I, I feel on some level we're gonna we're gonna make it. Absolutely. And it's gonna be the artists that help to help that transition happen as we go through this messy time.
0: We'll definitely have to be at the forefront. I mean, listening yeah. to you talk right now, I mean, it harkens back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast when I was when we were talking about criticism and providing solutions. I feel like an an artist in telling a story or doing a dance or painting a picture, writing a poem all of those things that fall under that umbrella, you are shedding light on something in some regard, even if it is a, a, a depiction of great pain. You're shedding light on the fact that people everywhere can experience these things. So if it's, a, if like I said, if it's a, a depiction of great pain, someone out there might see that painting or see that performance or hear th- that song and, and know that they're not alone yeah and then the artist now could be at the forefront of providing the rallying cry for people to get behind and out there marching and and voting and all of those things that we need to be doing to stay on top of this change right it can't just end now that january 20th is here and and someone new so is in office it's got it be. actually
1: it actually has to start now mm-hmm. this, is, this is the time to begin it and an interesting thing i've always felt that as an artist you don't really need to be good you need to you need to be honest
0: yeah
1: and and i i used to host a talk show on cable tv in new york and this was public access in the 80s and i was so afraid the first show that i did it's live in new york city monday night channel d which was the public access station one hour after our show was the nudist show, where they had the people sitting in chairs with no clothes on, holding talk shows. That's this was New York in the eighties, and everybody goes, "Wow, you were on Channel D." And I went, "Yeah, but we weren't. We weren't the eleven o'clock. We were at nine o'clock. So we did." But I was I was hosting this, and I had an opportunity. My my first or second show was to interview this subway artist that had been drawing graffiti art in the subways and the news had been talking about it because it wasn't crap. He was doing really beautiful images that were done in like 60 seconds and they were all over the city and they were scrubbing them off, they were cleaning the walls and the public started saying, stop cleaning these off the walls. These are beautiful art and they're simple. Glowing babies spacemen with helmets that are glowing and nobody knew who this artist was and the producer of the show who was also a film director that I had done my first short film with uh, he said yeah we found out who this guy is and we'd like you to do his first interview nobody knows him his name is Keith Herring mm-hmm. and uh, Keith Herring ended up becoming one of the pop icon artists of the 80s and early nineties, Andy Warhol took him in. He became world famous. His paintings and his artwork goes for hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I did his first interview and I called a friend of mine up the night before I said, I am so scared to do live TV right now in New York that I was vomiting. And I just said, I'm, I'm so afraid to do this. And she said, why are you afraid? I said, I'm afraid I'm gonna make an ass out of myself. I, I, I do malaprops constantly. I'll say one thing and it means something else and I don't catch it. And other people, he just said that. And mm-hmm. I said, I'm afraid I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. And I'm going to come across looking like an idiot, an inarticulate idiot. And she laughed and she says, what I'd like you to think about when you go into the thing is embrace the part of you that is an idiot because he's there. Mm-hmm. Don't be ashamed of him. Just go out there and embrace him. And do your interview open-hearted. If you say something stupid, just say, oops. And that's it. But don't yeah. censor yourself from going out there because you're afraid of making a mistake. And that was one of the best pieces of information I'd ever been given by anybody is get out there and do it. And, and there's something I want to say to you because I've listened to a number of your podcasts just recently, just this last week, and I really think that what I admire about you is you are doing this, not trying to make money, not trying to get famous, but you are, you're very pure in what you do. And I felt that about you as an actor as well, is you get out there and you, you do it and you express yourself and it's not full of guys. I was a man who, trust me, I know about guys. I i got away with it for a long time in my young, in my young career, probably Mm -hmm. still do on some level, but I admire what you're doing because it reminds me very much of the early 1980s when I did public access TV in New York, where we just, we just had people on and we just Mm -hmm. 30 minutes live TV. It it only came crashing down on me once the reality of it, when I did one about world hunger and um, I had a guest on who talked about world, world hunger and starvation and, and some solutions And I said, let's do a phone-in show where people can call in and ask questions because this guy was a a national expert. And we got one phone call in a half hour. And it happened to be his friend who, he says, call in and ask this question. And that was when I realized that my viewership (laughs) was was probably nobody watched this show. And, uh, And certainly nobody took the time to call in. And it was channel D and they were probably just waiting for the 11 o'clock hour and seeing if, it was, if they turn out, Oh, it's not on yet. Uh, you know, I, I don't know, but I think what you're doing reminds me of the early pioneering days of cable public access TV. When you just, you, you got the time and you, you delivered it and then you're done every week. You had the only thing you had to do was you had to produce a show every, yeah. every Monday and, and, uh, and we had several actors, several, several people hosting it. But it was uh, um that's what you, that's what I that's what I admire about what you're doing and why I'm 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 honored that you asked me to even just come on here.
0: Oh thank this you, is, Paul. This isn't
1: this isn't gonna move the needle on anything, but it's <laughs> great to talk. It's great to talk,
0: you know? Definitely. Well, I appreciate first of all, I really appreciate that coming from you. That's an amazing compliment. I have a great deal of respect for you. I'm sitting here thinking of like, I'm gonna do an intro after we're done recording this. And one of the things I'm definitely gonna say is and here's a spoiler for those of you when I give you the intro. You're a, you're a warrior poet. I mean, the way I was sitting here listening to you talk about your desire to get dirty and, and really experience humanity and at the same time give, to humani- give back to humanity, be a part of humanity. At the same time, be afraid of not being enough in that giving and receiving. And it makes you very accessible, and, and then it, it. Thank you, I really appreciate it. It's, but and you've lived this int- really intriguing life, and this feels like we could do like a five part mini series on just kind of exploring this. Uh, honestly, it, when you when you look back, is that conversation with that young lady? Your ghost light, is that the piece of advice you wish you'd had when you'd started your business, to just go out there and do it? No, is I, that what I, you'd I, leave for the next generation?
1: I i do not wouldn't look back and say, I wish I knew that before, because I, I, I heard it when I needed to hear it. Mm. Because it's quite possible that something like that had been said to be 10 times, but I wasn't in the frame of mind to hear it.
0: That's so
1: um, hearing it at that moment when I was desperate, and feeling my legs were, were gonna give out from under me. It gave me strength and it gave me to accept the imperfections that I have and go, I'm okay with these because I'm actually in many ways, more like more people who have imperfections that they spend their lives hiding. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I'm one of those people who've done that too. I don't wanna show my weaknesses for fear of people taking advantage of them. So as an artist, would I wanna pass that on? Yeah. Um, I always believe that we hold one hand up to the heavens and the other hand down to earth, and we're we're just sort of connecting people. We're kind of the human connection. I, I, I had a wonderful conversation with a friend, Marcus Waterman, today, Who and I'd asked you prior to this if you knew who he was. Marcus and Jan Waterman, married couple, still married for God knows how many years. My wife and I are married 33 years. Is that easy? No, it's... It's hard. It's hard to be two actors and artists married together. Um, and I look at a guy like Ed Beyerlein. Um, there was an older woman that I was teaching an acting class to who was in her mid seventies. And, and uh, I asked, I mentioned Ed Beyerlein years ago from the germinal stage. I said, Ed, we've been working with a woman who's an old lady who helped us get a, get a rehearsal space to do these, these showcases. Her name is Roberta Hoover. And he goes, Bobby, I said, you know her? She said she used to act. And we just thought she's some old lady who, you know, who did community theater in high school or something like that. Mm-hmm. And he goes, no, she was a leading actress in the Denver theater scene in the 60s and 70s. Uh. And she left. Nobody even knows who she is. Just as she's since passed away, um, Marcus Waterman, a lot of people don't know him and, and, and his wife. And they were like royalty. In Denver when I moved here in in 89. Uh, I grew up here but I lived in New York and came back and when I came back I was starting to reacquaint myself. There's so many theater couples, David and Julie Payne, um, uh, a lot of people who were very very, uh, uh, what was the word I want to say, they were influential in the in the, in the scene who have since moved on and mm-hmm. it's time now for those of us in the middle to reach down and and not that we're pulling anybody up, but we're connecting electrically. You're the bridge. And we're the bridge. Exactly. We we are to remind them that one day they will be us and then one day we will be the memory. Mm-hmm. And And we keep that connection together. And if there's a responsibility that I think we have in this community is to remember the people that came before us. Uh, we used to call that when I was a kid, respect your elders. It doesn't mean that they're right all the time. It just means respect them. Absolutely. Because you, you know, you don't get to live to old age without surviving a whole lot of pain and a whole lot of sorrow and a whole lot of challenges. And nobody ever can possibly know what that feels like until you've done it. Yeah. Until you've done it. And so, we should always remember who we are where we're at in that continuum and and stay connected to it
0: absolutely i mean it, it, what you described in terms of how your career started is this desire to experience things life is a collection of experiences and yeah somebody who's been there you should respect them and their journey you don't have to agree with them you don't have to condone their journey but to respect it and understand that there are sides to it that you don't know anything about until you've
1: lived it. And even if you live it, there's no way you will ever know what their personal filter experience was, filtered experience was Absolutely, because everybody has their own experience. So you need to respect the fact that, um, I, one more story. Um, I Please. was, I was, I was hosting a, um, um, a medical convention in Boston. I was just the MC. they flew me out there to introduce people. And they had these uh, medical doctors, I don't know, yeah, medical doctors who were giving these two hour lectures to an audience of four or 500 people. And they had these two cameramen on um, uh, on tables up above the crowd with the camera aimed at the speaker. And whenever he walked across the stage, they'd have these two IMAG screens in the back that would project the image to the people in the audience. so So the guy wouldn't look like a little peanut. And I would watch these two cameramen listen to five hours of lectures of these guys just droning on medical things, which was interesting to the crowd, but to me, way over my head. I didn't know what they were talking about. And after the three days of doing this thing, I was having lunch with this older gentleman. He was white, long hair, a beard, portly, wore a a black shirt and black pants, which is what the crew wears. And I said, uh, We were having lunch, and I said, How do you, how do you, stay awake during this stuff. Cause these guys, you never know when they're going to move. And I watched you for an hour, never miss any time that guy moved, you followed him around. I said, as a crew, you, you got to have special skill for that. And he says, well, I'm well into my seventies and I'm retired. He says, I do this just to stay busy. And I said, but how do you not fall asleep during this? And he goes, I, I know what my job is. He says, and I, I worked in television for years. I said, really? So I'm thinking he's just this old crew guy. Mm-hmm. I said, so you know, what did you what did you do? What was your? He goes, well, have you ever heard of the Steve Allen show? <laughs> and I said, yeah. Now, the Steve Allen show, for anybody who doesn't know, that was that was like the Johnny Carson of before Johnny Carson. He was he was a guy who had a talk show and an entertainment show in the and I think it was in the late fifties, uh, mid fifties, and it went into the sixties, I think. Yeah. Um, and he goes. I said, oh, I know, I know the, the Steve Allen show. He goes, well, I was the producer of the Steve Allen show. And I'm oh. thinking, I thought you were like the cameraman. He goes, no, I, I was the producer. He said, I was the producer of the number one television show in America. And he goes, and I did the QE2 and we decided we wanted to broadcast the show. He goes, that was my idea to take the show on the QE2 and broadcast on a boat in the middle of the Atlantic ocean. He goes, we were, we were having fun in those days. And I went, wow and i said forgive me for just looking at you and thinking you're just some old tired crew guy who's trying to make a buck and he said have you ever heard of the monkeys the the, the entertainment the singing group and i said yeah and he goes you know mickey Dolans? and i said yeah he was the drummer he said you know about a couple of weeks ago mickey and i were in uh, in the park in uh, where where all the kids go to where the liberty building was not the liberty bell but the liberty uh um, I don't remember what the name of the building is that everybody go. Mm-hmm. Liberty Hall, I think, is where they, where they, 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 the colonists all met during the revolution. He says, there were busloads of high school kids being dropped off, going on tours. And we were sitting at a picnic tale, table in the middle of the commons, having sandwiches. And he said, and we were crowded with just hundreds of teenagers running around. And he said, I'm formerly the producer of, of this top show. Mickey Dolenz was from the monkeys who could not walk in the street anywhere without getting mobbed by teenagers in their heyday. Mm. Now they're just two old men sitting at a picnic table in a park eating a sandwich and nobody even knew who they were or what power those two men possessed in their prime. And he goes, it's he says it's it's humbling and it's also wonderfully poetic and beautiful. To be able to sit here and go, I've, I've lived at the top of the mountain. I've been I've been to the other side. And I just thought, wow, you've lived a blessed life. He goes, I have been. I have. Huh. He says, so I good. was at the height of fame. And, and now I'm just this obscure old man having lunch in the park. <laughs> and um, and found, chatting with you. Chatting with me. Yeah. And then I'm going to come back 10, 12 years later and share that story on a podcast with my friend, Sam Gilstrap.
0: Heck, yes, you are. <laughs> Hey, hey, ladies and gentlemen, we are the Ghost Lights Podcast. Our guest today was Paul Barillo. Paul, thank you so much for sharing your stories with us and and sitting down. I want to do this again. You'll be back for sure. Uh, yeah, we definitely gotta, yeah, we got to get you and Erica on because yeah. that's going to be a, a good time for everyone. Once again, everyone, please stay safe out there. Keep your masks up. We're not through this yet. Um, love each other and take it easy. We'll see you next time. Dan, do the damn thing. of love at times we get sick of love it seems
1: like we argue every day